Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We're continuing our series called Blessed Are the Weird. This week's message is by Susan Garlinger. Good Sunday morning to you. It's great to see all of you out there. Welcome back to the study we've been in this fall. Blessed are the weird. We've been looking at that sermon Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5, where he presented what we call the Beatitudes. These things, these ways of life that if we do them, if we live them, no one could ever accuse us of being normal. We'd be known as weird. Let's review what we've been into this fall. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the ones who've declared their dependence on God. Blessed are those who mourn. This is the person who's sorrowful about his or her condition and goes to God in repentance. Blessed are the meek. No power on our own, no defense. We turn completely to God. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is when we truly seek the person of Christ. When we have recognized how desperately we need God and we've turned ourselves over to him, he begins to transform us. Only God can make a person merciful. Only God can make us pure in heart through that cleansing process. Only God can turn us into peacemakers. We'll look at that this morning. And only God could help us understand how we can be blessed when persecuted. No amount of trying, no amount of punching tickets or checking boxes, no amount of our own effort can make any of us live this way. Only when a person is in right relationship with the Lord himself can these things come out of us. Only then can we be transformed in these ways. As we actually begin this morning, I want to ask if you remember December of 2008. It started snowing here in the Willamette Valley and it seemed like it would never stop. That was December, and my husband works for UPS, and I tell you what, that year, besides Santa Claus, there was no one who worked longer hours than my husband. And so while the snow kept falling and falling and falling, I was trapped inside with my two-year-old daughter and one-year-old twin boys. I had some grand plans that sort of fell apart. I had said that my kids wouldn't watch TV, but on day three, trapped in the house, there I was, Bob the Builder, Clifford the Big Red Dog. Oh, look, sweetie, another VHS tape. Let's see what's on this. I had said they wouldn't watch TV, but I got over that. I had said my kids wouldn't eat junk food. And then on about day five, the great big box of homemade cookies arrived from grandma. My daughter mastered the art of cookie eating during that break. I had the goal of no junk food, but I let that one go. 
There was one thing, though, that I couldn't let go of. One thing happened that penetrated my heart that struck me so deeply. I've not been able to get past it. It has to do with my boys. They're eight years old now, but here's a picture of them when they were babies. Genetically identical. They had shared my womb, and then they came home from the hospital and shared a room. So unified were these two, we had to label them to even know who was who. My vision was that they would live in that twinful harmony forever. <laughs> but during that time of the blizzard, something happened. They were about 14 or 15 months. Here's what they looked like. Still so perfect looking, aren't they? Well, one day, my daughter and I were sitting on the couch. I think we were watching TV and eating cookies at the time. The snow was falling, and in the other room, we heard a commotion. It sounded like cats screeching. And all of a sudden, Twin A came toddling around the corner as fast as he could, wielding a stuffed animal that doesn't belong to him. And then Twin B came around the corner chasing after, when all of a sudden, Twin A turned and clobbered Twin B. This terrible wrestling match erupted, arms and legs flailing, toddler hair pulled and all of a sudden, the boys collapsed in utter tears on the floor. I dove off the couch, grabbed them up, held them in my arms, and said, No, 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 we don't do this. This isn't who you are. And right in that moment, I realized that I was the mother of the victim and the assailant. And when that realization came to me, I can tell you honestly, I didn't have a favorite boy. <laughs> My heart was desperately hurting for both of them because I knew this was not what was best for them. As we come to blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, we need to realize God's deep, deep heart of concern for us. We need to know that it was God who created us all. God loves us all. As the perfect heavenly father, when he looks down, he does not see victim and assailant. He sees children that he wants to resemble himself. And as hard as that can be for us to imagine, he sees us as his. He sees us as precious. And it grieves him when we bicker. It grieves him, it pains him when we're at war with each other. Whether this topic today brings to mind thoughts of conflict maybe in your own home, or maybe it brings thoughts of terrible things going around all over the world, 
let's be sure we realize there's something big in this for all of us. The great sermon we're looking at is in Matthew chapter 5, and there are Bibles in front of you, but all of the scriptures will be on the screen today. Join me as we get back into the story, remembering where we started several weeks ago. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. It was the custom of the rabbi in that day to sit down when he taught. This wasn't an afternoon picnic with casual conversation among friends. This was intentional teaching. Jesus was speaking to the crowds who claimed they would follow him. It's life-altering stuff he's presenting to them because they've pledged their allegiance to him. Listen to our beatitude for this weekend. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Between the Old and New Testament were 400 years. Theologians refer to them as the silent years because we have no record of God interacting specifically and personally with people. We don't have stories or any record of that, so they call them the silent years. But to the crowd gathered on the hillside with Jesus that day, I'm willing to bet they considered the 400 years anything but silent. At least five times there had been bloody assault, bloody battle for possession of their precious capital city, Jerusalem. They were years filled with strife. Now the Romans occupy their homeland. And King Herod had even tried to kill all the baby boys when Jesus was born. Times were violent. Times were oppressive. And God's people probably wanted war. They saw it as the only way to get rid of the occupying forces those who believed Messiah would come, believed he would come for this purpose, to rid us of the Romans. But Jesus very intentionally sits down that day, looks into the faces of those gathered with him, those ready to go to war, and he speaks to them about peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. They thought he would talk about a revolution, and instead he talks of making peace. We need to realize that Jesus also had grown up under that Roman oppression. Maybe when he was a boy, he would overhear his parents talking about how Joseph's carpentry business just couldn't thrive because of the terrible tax put on it. Maybe Jesus had watched as the Romans carried out their cruel brand of punishment. Whatever the case, Jesus doesn't rally them to war. He tells them, God will bless you if you make peace. God will turn his face and shine on you if you make peace. In fact, he says, those who work for peace will bear an incredible resemblance to their heavenly father. Their spiritual DNA will be traced to God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. What is it about God's heart as peacemaker? God is an incredible reconciler. Think about it. He brings sinful people back into right relationship with himself. He restores the relationship that you and I had no ability on our own to restore. When we look at the scriptures, we want to keep our sensibilities opened to what is it in his heart? What is it about peacemaking? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians was speaking to churchgoers, chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. People's sins pit them against God. But God, the offended party in the equation, is the one who initiates the restoration process. It's God who did the very hard work so that the world could be reconciled to him. God gave his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross. And that's the only way that a person can be restored to right relationship with God. Once we experience this right relationship with God, it was his heart that we would take the message of reconciliation to others. We can tell others that it's possible for a person to have peace with God. In fact, it's possible for an entire city to be at peace with God. Paul spoke again to another church in Ephesus, chapter 2. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. These are vastly different people groups, the Jews and Gentiles, as far away from each other as it's possible to be. They didn't like each other. They called each other unsavory names. They were mean to each other. They offended each other. They had hostility toward each other. And yet Jesus, through his death on the cross, even put the hostility to death. God's intention was that these very different people would come together and form one new people with Jesus Christ as their head. He made an entirely new people group from the two who had previously been at odds with each other. No longer was there a need for separation, whether it was a literal wall built between them, whether it was the chasm that separates warring people, or whether it's the relational conflicts that separate us from each other. God's heart is that people would experience peace with him 
and peace with each other. That's God's kingdom. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, not a kingdom where the biggest and the baddest wind up on top, but the kingdom of God is one whose monarch came as prince of peace. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus was talking again with his disciples, and he acknowledges, he feels the pain of their human dilemma. He acknowledges they'll have conflicts, but he wants them to know that there are appropriate ways they can learn to handle the conflict. Look in Matthew 18 with me. This is Jesus talking. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven Jesus is speaking to this original group of people who are under Roman rule. They're being occupied by enemy forces. And yet even with that going on, Jesus realizes they'll also have conflicts between themselves. Marriage conflicts, neighbor conflicts, playground conflicts, work conflicts, parent-child conflicts, every kind of conflict you can imagine. And he describes to them how to navigate the complexities of those lives God's way. You don't give up quickly. And then Peter, Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? And this was a generous, legitimate question on Peter's part. The tradition of the rabbis in that day was, forgive the offending party three times. So Peter is really more than doubling the offer. And Jesus says to him, no, 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 not seven times. Seventy times seven. And then before Peter got out his calculator, it started to sink in. The point Jesus was making, let there be no end to your forgiveness. Just keep on forgiving. Don't sweep it under the rug, but actually forgive. In the Old Testament, the wisdom writer wrote this in Proverbs 19.11. Sensible people control their temper. They even earn, they earn respect by overlooking wrongs. No one's suggesting to be a doormat. No one's saying turn a blind eye to abuse. No, 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 we never, ever do that. But truly forgive. Do the heart work that's needed so you can keep your temper in control. Jesus made the point to Peter and the disciples that day, you guys need to get good 
at forgiving. If we stuff it, it'll come back up when we least expect it, like an explosion. That's not handling your temper. But if we go to God with it, if we go to him first, if we express to him the hurt, if we're honest with him, by his spirit's power, he will help us deal with it. And we'll find that we can learn to forgive. That in power of the Holy Spirit, we can get good at forgiving. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. What is it that you and I can do, practically speaking, that would make us more like God in this, that would help us at peacemaking? Around here at Salem Alliance, from time to time, we talk about the peacemaker ministry. The whole mission of this ministry is to help people through conflict, help people do conflict biblically. I want us to spend a few minutes this morning looking at some of the peacemaker principles. We'll spend a minute or two looking at the bad things that maybe come more naturally to us. And then we'll focus in on how God would really want us to do it. First of all, the peace faking or the escape response. This is simply where we avoid the people or the situations that we don't want to deal with. We fake the peace because it's easier than actually working through something. Flight, that's when you run away, maybe from a job, from a church, from a relationship, whatever it might be, you just run. And if, if you're in an abusive situation, fleeing is probably the best choice. You get out of there and you get to safety. But in most cases, fleeing simply postpones a proper solution. Denial, your coworker comes to you about an issue and you look at them like, I don't got no issue. Your neighbor in the apartment next to you asks that you would turn the music down and you yell back, what, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. The music's too loud. Your spouse comes and says, hey, can we sit down and talk about this issue? And you look at them like you have no clue what they're talking about. Denial also makes matters worse. The person who knows there's a problem just keeps getting more and more frustrated. These peace-faking responses don't get us to a peaceful solution. Peace-breaking on the other side, these are the attack responses. This is what we do when we're more interested in getting our own way than in working to preserve and improve the relationship. Sometimes it's a matter of assault where we literally take physical action. Maybe it's trying to ruin a person's reputation or shut down their business. Maybe we resort to violence. Or we can blame. That's where I'm right. Every single one of you are wrong. And then there's this huge gap between us and we'll never be able to come together when that's the attitude. Peace faking and peace breaking, these tactics make things worse. When we do them, we're just going further and further and further away from God's heart 
for peacemaking. What is it that a peacemaker does? What is it that you and I can do to keep God center as we navigate conflict? Here are the peacemaking responses. The first thing we do is we always want to go higher. We want to remember that the solution to this is not in us. God will bring the solution. We want to bring glory to God. We want to relinquish, even in the conflict, we want to relinquish our hopes and dreams to him that his will will be done. What else do peacemakers do? They get real. Peacemakers are honest about their own stuff in the conflict. Maybe as a peacemaker, you take a deep breath and you ask God, get my words in check. Reveal my poor attitudes to me. Make my actions model what you would want me to do. When a person gets real, he or she confesses humbly their part in the problem. And that alone can work wonders to a situation. Peacemakers gently engage. When it's time to go to the other person, you approach gently. Whether it's your spouse, your child, your parent, your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, whoever it is. The peacemaker moves forward gently. They go and talk to the person first privately. And then they ask for help to come along with them if it's needed. And finally, what happens in this peacemaking process is the parties get together. That's the goal. That's the aim. That's the hope of peacemaking. The two parties come together, and that's when reconciliation can occur. That's when relationships can be restored. That's when solutions can be found. That's what it's all about. God reconciling people to himself and people to each other. Peacemakers are known as the sons of God. Their spiritual DNA will forever link them to Almighty God. Peter asked Jesus, well, what should I do? Should I forgive someone even as many as seven times? And Jesus shocked him when he said, no, 70 times seven. Obviously, Peter, like me, maybe like you, had much to learn about forgiveness. And he did learn. Look what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. I think we can be shocked that peacemaking might be a process. Peter tells us, search for it, work for it. Searching for peace can be a long, drawn-out process. But peacemakers understand how God wants them to live, and they will spend their lives searching for peace if they need to. My mom, who's now in her 80s, spent pretty much the first 60 years of her life looking for peace. She inherited a conflict from the generation older than her. Her mother and her aunt had a falling out, and the aunt and her family left Ohio and moved to California, never to be seen 
or heard from again. My mom grew up knowing very little about this conflict because her mother wouldn't talk about it. And my mom grew up aching for the cousins she never knew. As my mom got into her 20s, both of her parents died, and as she married my dad and began to raise us kids, I think she simply wanted better. I don't know how it happened, but my mom found the first of these cousins when I was just a little girl. And of all places, he and his wife lived in Portland, Oregon. At Christmas time each year, my mom would call us into the dining room and she'd get that phone that was connected into the wall with a cord and we'd all gather around and she'd call her cousin in Portland and we would sing Christmas carols to him. One time he and his wife took a cross-country trailer trip and came all the way to Ohio to meet us. But for the most part, that's all I knew was going on. What I didn't realize is that my mother would not give up hope. In the early 1990s, one of my sisters moved to California. My mom went there to visit my sister and she shared this dream. I heard that one of my cousins lived in Visalia at one point. So they got in the car and they drove from L.A. to Visalia, California. They checked into a hotel. My mom got the phone book there on the desk and just started searching for any sign of that cousin. She found the name, courageously dialed the phone, and the woman on the other end was welcoming. They made a plan that they would meet the next day. So that next day, my mom and my sister drove to that house, knocked on the door, and when the door opened, much to my mom's thrill, it wasn't just one cousin, but it was a room full of cousins, multiple generations of cousins. And it turns out that all those California cousins didn't know anything more about the conflict than my mom did. Both sides of the family realized they didn't even know what started it. One thing they agreed on, from this point forward, they would be cousins. One woman's search for peace led to a whole bunch of cousins and a room full of people who determined that they would let go of a whole generation's worth of conflict. Peace was made. Peace was agreed upon. Peace was celebrated. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Somehow, this process of peacemaking takes ordinary people and turns them into God's offspring. People who bear God's likeness. People who, when they do the spiritual DNA test, they will be linked to our Heavenly Father. When we receive reconciliation from God, we can be ministers of that same reconciliation to the world that desperately needs it. Three things I want us to remember as we close. Hopelessness can be exchanged for hopefulness. The role that hopelessness plays in this 
is ghastly. Hopelessness has been described to me as the greatest form of self-reliance there is. Hopelessness believes that God is done. I'm on my own. Nothing will change. Reconciliation won't come. Why should I even try? But hopefulness bases all belief in Jesus. Hopefulness prays. Hopefulness waits. Hopefulness scours a phone book looking for cousins. Hopefulness lets go of the obsession for a better past. And hopefulness is the first in line to receive the better future that only God can bring. The second thing, humbleness. Humbleness says it just doesn't matter whether my mom or your mom started this thing. Humbleness embraces what someone in the past rejected. Arrogance needs to be right. Humbleness longs for relationship. Humbleness walks into the room full of cousins and embraces. And the third thing, holiness. When we walk through conflict in God's ways, we'll be made holy. We'll look more and more and more like him. We'll be known as God's kids. We'll be his offspring. Blessed are the peacemakers for their spiritual DNA will forever link them to their heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gratitude over what you've done is impossible for us to express. We bow to you, we lower ourselves to you, and we sing of your glory, the only one able to reconcile us to you. Will you convince us in our hearts of the relationship you've offered us? And then will you equip us to take it to the world? We praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we praise you. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.